Part Three, Chapter Seven of the Exploits of Brigadier Gerard by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. There were only about twenty steps, and yet while I came up them, I seemed to have time to think of everything that I had ever hoped to do. It was the same feeling that I had at Eilau when I lay with my broken leg and saw the horse artillery galloping down upon me. Of course I knew that if I were taken I should be shot instantly as being disguised within the enemy's lines. Still, it was a glorious death in the direct service of the Emperor, and I reflected that there could not be less than five lines, and perhaps seven in the moniture about me. Palaret had eight lines, and I am sure that he had not so fine a career. When I made my way out into the hall, with all the nonchalance in my face and manner that I could assume, the very first thing that I saw was Bouvet's dead body, with his legs drawn up and a broken sword in his hand. I could see by the black smudge that he had been shot at close quarters. I should have wished to salute as I went by, for he was a gallant man, but I feared lest I should be seen, and so I passed on. The front of the hall was full of Prussian infantry, who were knocking loopholes in the wall, as though they expected that there might be yet another attack. Their officer, a little man, was running about giving directions. They were all too busy to take much notice of me, but another officer, who was standing by the door with a long pipe in his mouth, strode across and clapped me on the shoulder, pointing to the dead bodies of our poor hussars, and saying something which was meant for a jest for his long beard opened and showed every fang in his head. I laughed heartily also, and said the only Russian words that I knew. I learned them from little Sophie at Wilna, and they meant, If the night is fine, we shall meet under the oak tree, but if it rains, we shall meet in the byre. It was all the same to this German, however, and I have no doubt that he gave me credit for saying something very witty indeed, for he roared laughing and slapped me on my shoulder again. I nodded to him and marched out of the hall door as coolly as if I were the commandant of the garrison. There were a hundred horses tethered about outside, most of them belonging to the Poles and Hussars. Good little Violette was waiting with the others, and she whinnied when she saw me coming towards her. But I would not mount her. No, I was much too cunning for that. On the contrary, I chose the most shaggy little Cossack horse that I could see and I sprang upon it with as much assurance as though it had belonged to my father before me. It had a great bag of plunder slung over its neck, and this I laid upon Violette's back, and led her along beside me. Never have you seen such a picture of the Cossack returning from the foray. It was superb. Well, the town was full of Prussians by this time. They lined the sidewalks and pointed me out to each other, saying, as I could judge from their gestures, there goes one of those devils of Cossacks. They are the boys for foraging and plunder. One or two officers spoke to me with an air of authority, but I shook my head and smiled and said, If the night is fine, we shall meet under the oak tree, but if it rains, we shall meet in the byre. At which they shrugged their shoulders and gave the matter up. In this way I worked along until I was beyond the northern outskirt of the town. I could see in the roadway two lancer vedettes, with their black and white pennons, and I knew that when I was once past these I should be a free man once more. I made my pony trot, therefore, 
Violette rubbing her nose against my knee all the time, and looking up at me to ask how she had deserved that this hairy doormat of a creature should be preferred to her. I was not more than a hundred yards from the Ulans when suddenly you can imagine my feelings when I saw a real Cossack coming galloping along the road towards me. Ah, my friend, you who read this, if you have any heart you will feel for a man like me, who had gone through so many dangers and trials, only at this very last moment to be confronted with one which appeared to put an end to everything. I will confess that for a moment I lost heart, and was inclined to throw myself down in my despair and to cry out that I had been betrayed. But no, I was not beaten even now. I opened two buttons of my tunic, so that I might get easily at the Emperor's message, for it was my fixed determination, when all hope was gone, to swallow the letter, and then die, sword in hand. Then I felt that my little crooked sword was loose in its sheath, and I trotted on to where the vedettes were waiting. They seemed inclined to stop me, but I pointed to the other Cossack, who was still a couple of hundred yards off, and they, understanding that I merely wished to meet him, let me pass with a salute. I dug my spurs into my pony then, for if I were only far enough from the lancers, I thought I might manage the Cossack without much difficulty. He was an officer, a large bearded man with a gold chevron in his cap, just the same as mine. As I advanced, he unconsciously aided me by pulling up his horse, so that I had a fine start of the vedettes. On I came for him, and I could see wonder changing to suspicion in his brown eyes, as he looked at me and my pony, and at my equipment. I do not know what it was that was wrong, but he saw something which was as it should not be. He shouted out a question, and then, when I gave no answer, he pulled out his sword. I was glad in my heart to see him do so, for I had always rather fight than cut down an unsuspecting enemy. Now I made at him full tilt, and parrying his cut, I got my point in just under the fourth button of his tunic. Down he went, and the weight of him nearly took me off my horse before I could disengage. I never glanced at him to see if he were living or dead, for I sprang off my pony and on to Violetta with a shake of my bridle and a kiss of my hand to the two Ulans behind me. They galloped after me, shouting, but Violette had had her rest and was just as fresh as when she started. I took the first side road to the west and then the first to the south, which would take me away from the enemy's country. On we went and on, every stride taking me further from my foes and nearer to my friends. At last, when I reached the end of a long stretch of road, and looking back from it, could see no sign of any pursuers, I understood that my troubles were over. And it gave me a glow of happiness as I rode, to think that I had done to the letter what the Emperor had ordered. What would he say when he saw me? What could he say which would do justice to the incredible way in which I had risen above every danger? He had ordered me to go through Semois, Soissons, and Saint-Lys, little dreaming that they were all three occupied by the enemy, and yet I had done it. I had borne his letter in safety through each of these towns. Hussars, dragoons, lancers, Cossacks, and infantry, I had run the gauntlet of all of them and had come out unharmed. When I had got as far as Damartin, I caught a first glimpse of our own outposts. There was a troop of dragoons in a field, and of course I could see from the horsehair crests that they were French. I galloped towards them in order to ask them if all was safe between there and Paris, 
and as I rode I felt such a pride at having won my way back to my friends again that I could not refrain from waving my sword in the air. At this a young officer galloped out from among the dragoons, also brandishing his sword, and it warmed my heart to think that he should come riding with such ardour and enthusiasm to greet me. I made Violette caracole, and as we came together I brandished my sword more gallantly than ever. But you can imagine my feelings when he suddenly made a cut at me, which would certainly have taken my head off if I had not fallen forward with my nose in Violette's mane. My faith, it whistled just over my cap like an east wind. Of course it came from this accursed Cossack uniform, which in my excitement I had forgotten all about, and this young dragoon had imagined that I was some Russian champion who was challenging the French cavalry. My word, he was a frightened man when he understood how near he had been to killing the celebrated Brigadier Gerard. Well, the road was clear, and about three o'clock in the afternoon I was at Saint-Denis, though it took me a long two hours to get from there to Paris, for the road was blocked with commissariat wagons and guns of the artillery reserve, which was going north to Marmont and Mortier. You cannot conceive the excitement which my appearance in such a costume made in Paris, and when I came to the Rue de Rivoli I should think I had a quarter of a mile of folk riding or running behind me. Word had got about from the dragoons, two of whom had come with me, and everybody knew about my adventures and how I had come by my uniform. It was a triumph, men shouting and women waving their handkerchiefs and blowing kisses from the windows. Although I am a man singularly free from conceit, still I must confess that, on this occasion, I could not restrain myself from showing that this reception gratified me. The Russian's coat had hung very loose upon me, but now I threw out my chest until it was as tight as a sausage skin, and my little sweetheart of a mare tossed her mane and pawed with her front hoofs, frisking her tail about as though she said, We've done it together this time. It is to us that commissions should be entrusted. When I kissed her between the nostrils as I dismounted at the gate of the Tuileries, there was as much shouting as if a bulletin had been read from the Grand Army. I was hardly in costume to visit a king, but after all, if one has a soldierly figure, one can do without all that. I was shown up straight away to Joseph, whom I had often seen in Spain. He seemed as stout, as quiet, and as amiable as ever. Talleyrand was in the room with him, or I suppose I should call him the Duke of Benevento, but I confess that I like the old names best. He read my letter when Joseph Bonaparte handed it to him, and then he looked at me with the strangest expression in those funny little twinkling eyes of his. "'Were you the only messenger?' he asked. "'There was one other, sir,' said I, Major Charpentier of the Horse Grenadiers. "'He has not yet arrived,' said the King of Spain. "'If you had seen the legs of his horse, sir, you would not wonder at it,' I remarked. There may be other reasons, said Talleyrand, and he gave that singular smile of his. Well, they paid me a compliment or two, though they might have said a good deal more, and yet have said too little. I bowed myself out, and very glad I was to get away, for I hate a court as much as I love a camp. Anyway, I went to my old friend Chaubert, in the Rue Miramoncil, and there I got his hussar uniform, which fitted me very well. He and Lisette and I 
supped together in his rooms, and all my dangers were forgotten. In the morning I found Violette ready for another twenty-league stretch. It was my intention to return instantly to the Emperor's headquarters, for I was, as you may well imagine, impatient to hear his words of praise and to receive my reward. I need not say that I rode back by a safe route, for I had seen quite enough of Uhlans and Cossacks. I passed through Meaux and Chateau Thierry, and so in the evening I arrived at Rams, where Napoleon was still lying. The bodies of our fellows and of St. Prest's Russians had all been buried, and I could see changes in the camp also. The soldiers looked better cared for. Some of the cavalry had received remounts, and everything was in excellent order. It was wonderful what a good general can effect in a couple of days. When I came to the headquarters I was shown straight into the Emperor's room. He was drinking coffee at a writing-table, with a big plan drawn out on paper in front of him. Berthier and MacDonald were leaning, one over each shoulder, and he was talking so quickly that I don't believe that either of them could catch a half of what he was saying. But when his eyes fell upon me, he dropped the pen onto the chart, and he sprang up with a look in his pale face which struck me cold. "'What the deuce are you doing here?' he shouted. When he was angry, he had a voice like a peacock. "'I have the honour to report to you, sire,' said I, "'that I have delivered your dispatch safely to the King of Spain.' "'What?' he yelled, and his two eyes transfixed me like bayonets. "'Oh, those dreadful eyes, shifting from grey to blue, like steel in the sunshine. "'I can see them now when I have a bad dream.' "'What has become of Charpentier?' he asked. "'He's captured,' said MacDonald. "'By whom?' "'The Russians.' "'The Cossacks?' "'No, a single Cossack.' "'He gave himself up?' "'Without resistance. "'He is an intelligent officer. "'You will see that the Medal of Honour is awarded to him.' "'When I heard those words I had to rub my eyes to make sure that I was awake.' "'As to you,' cried the Emperor, taking a step forward as if he would have struck me, "'you brain of a hare, what do you think that you were sent upon this mission for? "'Do you conceive that I would send a really important message by such a hand as yours, "'and through every village which the enemy holds? "'How you came through them passes my comprehension, "'but if your fellow-messenger had had but as little sense as you, "'my whole plan of campaign would have been ruined.' Can you not see, Colioni, that this message contained false news, and that it was intended to deceive the enemy, whilst I put a very different scheme into execution? When I heard those cruel words, and saw the angry white face which glared at me, I had to hold the back of a chair, for my mind was failing me, and my knees would hardly bear me up. But then I took courage, as I reflected that I was an honourable gentleman, and that my whole life had been spent in toiling for this man and for my beloved country. Sire, said I, and the tears would trickle down my cheeks whilst I spoke. When you are dealing with a man like me, you would find it wiser to deal openly. Had I known that you wished to dispatch the fall into the hands of the enemy, I would have seen that it came there. As I believed that I was to guard it, I was prepared to sacrifice my life for it. I do not believe, sire, that any man in the world ever met with more toils and perils than I have done in trying to carry out what I thought was your will. 
I dashed the tears from my eyes as I spoke, and with such fire and spirit as I could command, I gave him an account of it all, of my dash through Soissons, my brush with the dragoons, my adventure in Saint-Lee, my rencontre with Count Botkin in the cellar, my disguise, my meeting with the Cossack officer, my flight, and how at the last moment I was nearly cut down by a French dragoon. The Emperor, Berthier, and MacDonald listened with astonishment on their faces. When I had finished, Napoleon stepped forward, and he pinched me by the ear. "'There, there,' said he, "'forget anything which I may have said. "'I would have done better to trust you. "'You may go.' "'I turned to the door, and my hand was upon the handle "'when the Emperor called upon me to stop. "'You will see,' said he, "'that Brigadier Gerard has the special medal of honour, "'for I believe that if he has the thickest head, "'he has also the stoutest heart in my army.' End of chapter 7